Please turn with me in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3, we're looking at the entirety of the chapter as most of it is very descriptive of the judgment of God. You know, it is so amazing as you consider the flow of this book. You have, the, you have the prophet who is complaining unto the Lord in the very first chapter. He sees so much violence and bloodshed. He petitions the Lord, why aren't you doing anything? And the Lord responds and tells him what he is going to do. He is going to raise up the Babylonians. He is going to use them as the rod of his anger, the rod of his, his chastisement against his people. The prophet, as we saw in the very first chapter, is very disturbed by this, questioning the Lord, how can you do this? And he's going to go in the tower and he's going to wait for the Lord to reprove him. He's waiting to see what the Lord is going to answer him with. And so the Lord then answers him. He's going to tell him that no, he doesn't show favor with those who are wicked. He is going to judge that very nation as well. He is going to bring the haughty man low, but he calls upon his people to live by faith. He he pronounces a number of woes against against his enemies. And as we finished up chapter 2, in light of all that is occurring, in light of the the judgment of God and and the oracles of doom that are being mentioned there, we end chapter 2 with the Lord in his holy temple and the earth being silent before him. Chapter 3 is very different from chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 3, really, his whole demeanor, it seems as if his whole demeanor shifts. In view of all this devastation, he begins to praise God. He begins to to ascribe worth to him, to recall his great uh, works in, in the past, his, his majesty and his glory. The prophet is now taking his eyes off of the people who are committing the bloodshed, off of the calamity that's getting ready to occur. He's, he's taking the majority of this last chapter and he's, he's focused upon the God of his salvation. He is delighting and he is, he is, he is encouraged to hope even in the midst of all that is occurring. What you find in chapter 3 it's also very, characteristics, very characteristic of a psalm. It is a psalm. It is, it is a prayer, yes, but it is very poetical. And it describes the great terror of the king coming in judgment upon his enemies. And you're seeing in that the justice of God as he had told the prophet he is going to to bring the judgment. He is a just and righteous God. And you're seeing that even more so in In this third chapter, it is a prayer reflecting upon the character of God. It is a prayer of hope, a prayer of praising him for his justice. And that is a very interesting thing, as you find in this very chapter. He is is praising God for his justice. that, That seems very different from how we often pray. Do you pray in this kind of a manner too? Praising God for His justice. 
We like to praise God for his love and for his mercy and for his grace and the fact that his mercies are new every morning. We have an advocate with the Father when we sin against him. But do we praise God for his justice? Because that's what the prophet is doing. Even in the midst of the terrible things that are going on in our own life, do we praise God for his justice? Again, because that is what the prophet is doing. In the midst of this great calamity that is getting ready to occur, this is a beautiful prayer by one of God's people. One writer says this, This is one of the great prayers of the Bible. To be placed alongside Abraham's intercession for Sodom, David's prayer at the dedication of the materials for the temple and the Psalms. It's a prayer in the midst of fear and of of great emotion. He's getting ready to endure uh, a very difficult trial. Because the things that God is telling him is going to occur in his lifetime. It's not far from the time in which God is telling the prophet this. But it all comes back to this. And you're seeing in chapter 3, the very thing that we found in chapter 2, verse 4, is what does it mean then to live by faith? And that's what's being given to us in chapter 3. This is, this is a demonstration of how to live by faith, of trusting in God and looking to the living God and living by faith. This is a wonderful conclusion uh, to this book by the prophet. Uh, If you would, please stand as we give honor to God's word. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. And let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Chapter 3, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to the Shigianoth, Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your works in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of His praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from His hand. And there is the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. Selah. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood still. Or, excuse me, sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. In indignation you marched through the earth, in anger you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. 
You trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound of my lips, at the sound my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble. Because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet, and makes me walk on my high places. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you, Father, that in times of great distress, you call your people to look upon you, to remember you, to reflect upon you, to trust in you, to be confident in you. Oh, Lord, we get so distracted by so many things that go on in our our lives or in, in the life of the nation things that distress us. And though we may have to endure, O Lord, produce in us a greater trust in you, that even in the midst of distress, in the midst of trials, we can rejoice in the God of our salvation. We pray that you would be glorified among your people and that your word would accomplish all you desire in us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. Again, as you're looking at this, very different from the other, the other chapters. It is, it is indeed this great psalm, a psalm of praise, a psalm of trust, a psalm of hope, a psalm of great emotion. And that's what some commentators would look at when it, when it says in that opening, in the opening verse that it is a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, the prophet according to the Shigianoth. Uh, some would say that this is in reference to uh, giving this indication of what this psalm is, how it is to be understood, that it is highly emotional, a highly emotional poetic uh, writing from the prophet. This prophet now stands in awe. He stands in awe of the God of his salvation. You see this prayer of hope in these first couple of verses. Even in the midst of the pain and distress that's getting ready to come, O Lord, in wrath, remember compassion. Petitioning the Lord as this is getting ready to occur. He says, Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. Some of your translations may say, I stand in awe. This is the answer to all the petitions that he had beforehand, all the difficult things that he could not reconcile in his mind. The answer to that is God, looking to God, remembering him, reflecting upon the majestic God whom we serve, who is the sovereign king over the nations. He is contemplating all of these things in his mind. He stands in awe. He stands in fear. Fear, of course, as we we understand from the other writings of Scripture and the Proverbs, that fear is the beginning of wisdom. 
He is learning something here. He is learning. Uh, and th- by the way, th- this is a very different prayer than what he began with. He is now standing in awe of God, whereas before he was complaining. How long am I going to have to view these things? How long are you going to stand by and let the, the righteous be swallowed up by the wicked? Why aren't you doing something, O Lord? And then you have, of course, the questioning of, of the character of God that he did also in chapter 1. You cannot look on favor with wickedness. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? And you know what he says now? Oh, Lord, I have heard the report. Everything that was just said by the Lord to the prophet has now changed the whole demeanor of the prophet. This is a very humble prayer now. He has been brought low, and now he is ascribing great worth to the king. I have heard the report about you, and I fear I stand in awe of you. It's almost as if a very similar thing when, when Job has is, is been complaining with his friends throughout the majority of the book of Job, and then you get into chapter 38, the Lord begins to speak back to Job, and what does Job say later on? I'm going to stand and I'm going to cover my mouth because I'm speaking of things too great for me. And what does the prophet do? He says, I stand in awe of you. Because you are the just God. You are the righteous God. I'm going to put my hand over my mouth because I'm uttering things that I can't even, I can't even comprehend about your justice and your righteousness. I heard the report about you and I fear. Oh, Lord. Now, this is a very different thing. Oh, Lord, revive your works in the midst of the years and in the midst of the years make it known. Oh, Lord, beforehand, how can you do this? How can you use more uh, wicked people to judge your people? But now what does he say? Yes, Lord, bring your works to bear. Renew your works and make them known. That's basically what he's saying. What changed? What really changed? He took his eyes off of the people committing bloodshed. He took his eyes off of the calamity that's getting ready to come. And he put his eyes on the king. That's what happened. The king who rules over the nations. The king who is the righteous one. He is the holy one. As he is going to refer to him in in verse 3. He's the great God. He's the holy one. Whereas before I'm questioning your holiness, now your holiness is on display before me. And that's who you are. You are the Holy One. You know, sometimes, as we've talked about before, sometimes God does things that maybe are not in our plans for Him to do. And it causes us distress and it causes us uh, to, to be very anxious. We, we question uh, why God does one thing rather than another. But often when we go to the Lord in prayer, even though we're praying for one thing to happen, often what happens to us is that we change. We change as a result of coming before the Lord in prayer. That prayer affects us, reminding ourselves as we are in the midst of saying whatever it is or in the midst of, of pinning your prayer. I don't know if some of us uh, pin our prayers, but you know, this is a very intentional prayer by the prophet. 
He has put a lot of thought in this. And there is so much of this that is saturated with Scripture. There are so many similarities between what Habakkuk writes here in Psalm 18 and Psalm 77 and numerous other places. He has put a lot of thought here and saturated this prayer in Scripture. And so when you pen your prayers, that's exactly what's happening. Your mind is engaged of everything that you are saying unto the Lord. And you're very intentional about what you're saying. And often as you do so... You're changed by the prayer, whether you write it, whether you're speaking it. Coming before the great king, the majestic king. Yes, Lord, bring your works to bear. You are the righteous one. You are the holy one. Renew your works and make them known. He does say, he does petition the Lord. He says, in wrath, remember mercy. Yes, Lord, let your works be known, but in your wrath, which is a very different word that's being used throughout the rest of this particular psalm. One translation says, or one commentator, uh, he interprets it, in the midst of all this chaos, remember compassion, which really captures, uh, as one writer said, really captures the, the meaning here of the words that he's using. Remember this compassion in the midst of your anger. Not compassion against the enemies of God, but the compassion towards his people who are enduring. In the midst of your anger, in the midst of all this chaos, O Lord, remember compassion. What a prayer, the beginning of this. He is very hopeful, even even knowing what is getting ready to come. The Lord will be merciful because the Lord has always been merciful to his people, even through the times in which the righteous suffer along with the unrighteous. And now, as he begins into uh, describing this coming of the, the mighty God, this, this great description that he gives in verses 3 to 15 Again, that are so uh, similar to many other passages that are in the scriptures, that are in the Psalms. Of the coming of the Lord and describing it in such language that it would cause fear and it would cause terror in the hearts of God's enemies. That all creation is affected when God is, is roused up to come against his enemies. This is a description of, of our sovereign king. And his appearing. You could look at this as a theophany. uh, An appearance of God in great power and glory. Which is again very similar to other passages of scripture. Uh, For example, if you hold your place there. And I do want you to flip to a number of passages that we'll be going over. So you can see uh, some of these in other, other areas of the word of God. I want you to focus in Exodus chapter 19 beginning of verse 16, but as you're moving there, I do want to point out verse 9, that the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak to you, and may also believe in you forever. He's coming to him in a thick cloud, is, is is the description there. But in verse 16, So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes, And a thick cloud upon the mountain and very loud trumpet sound. 
so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. When God makes himself known, all creation stands in awe of the God who created it. As the prophet is, is bringing this out, beginning in verse 3, he's, he's also bringing about in remembrance of, of the works of the Lord and what he had done previously, leading his people out of the exodus, because the, the places that he mentions here are places that God had kept his people and protected his people uh, as they had come out of Egypt. He said, God comes from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. These are areas in the Sinai Peninsula. Now listen, listen to these words, that his splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. Again, this is him coming in judgment. It is to provoke a fear in the midst of his enemies, in the hearts of his enemies. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand, as we read in other passages, of the lightning flashing from one place to another. And there is the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence and, and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. This is language of judgment. This is the same language that God uses in other portions of Scripture to describe Him coming in judgment. That it's not just an army that is coming against another. That when the people see it, that they think that this is, well, this is another battle to take place. No, God is describing Himself as the one who is coming. And in this kind of language, you cannot thwart the hand of the one who controls the thunder and the lightning, who, who shatters the, the mountains and the ancient hills. This is an enemy that, that, that has no equal. He startled the nations. The perpetual mountains were shattered. It's very poetical language of the coming of God. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers or... This is very interesting how he, he says this here. Did the Lord, the Lord rage against the rivers or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? As the Lord comes in all his majesty and all his glory and all creation is affected, even though in the description that is being given here, there are parts of creation that are affected at the coming of God. He's going to talk about those that put up their hands This is, in, this is bringing out the very fact that God is coming not for any other purpose, but to come for his enemies, those that are in rebellion, those that have affected his people. Your bow was made bare, the, rod, the rods of chastisement were sworn. You cleaved the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and quaked. 
The downpour of water swept by, the deep uttered forth its voice, it lifted high its hands. Now again, you know, we can, we can look and we can stand in awe of so many things in creation. The vastness of the oceans or, or the height of so many mountain ranges. And we look and we say, wow, that is very intimidating. But the point here is to say that even all of those main parts of creation itself quake and shake. They tremble before God because he is infinitely greater. That's, that's, the, that's the, the drive here. And he's coming for his enemies. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. They went away. The sun and the moon, they went away. The celestial bodies went away. Now that is language, again, of judgment. You know, Just holding your place there, and just to remind you, that in chapter 2, verse 4, we read, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Now, in Isaiah 13, we read of what the prophet is exp- expressing here. That the Lord is coming for his enemies. He's coming for Babylon. He is going to judge them for their wickedness. And Isaiah... Isaiah speaks of this as well. In Isaiah 13, beginning of verse 9, listen to this. This is an oracle concerning Babylon. If you read the first verse of chapter 13, we begin in verse 9. He says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold, and mankind like the goat of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. This is language of judgment. And by the way, this is not language of the final consummation. This is an oracle against Babylon. And it uses that kind of language to describe the, the great judgment of God coming upon his enemies. The same thing in Ezekiel chapter 32. <clears throat> when you have the prophet who is to speak against Pharaoh in Egypt. In Ezekiel chapter 32, beginning of verse 2, he says, Son of man, take up a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You compared yourself to a young lion of the nations, yet you were like the monster in the seas. And you burst forth in, the, in your rivers and muddled, and muddled the waters with your feet and fouled their rivers. Thus says the Lord God, now I will spread my net over you with a company of many peoples, and they shall lift you up in my net. I will leave you on the land. I will cast you on the open field, and I will cause all the birds of the heavens to dwell on you, and I will satisfy the beasts of the whole earth with you. I will lay your flesh on the mountains and fill the valleys with your refuse. 
I will also make the land drink the discharge of your blood as, for the, as far as the mountains, and the ravines will be full of you. And when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you and will set darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. What is he saying? You were the shining place in the earth. I'm going to put your lights out. You're going to be darkened. You're going to be brought down. And this is also the same language God uses against his own people in Joel chapter 2. He says in Joel chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming surely. It is near. And so <clears throat> he says, A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of, my, of many generations. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before, the, before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, so they run. With a noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble. Like a mighty people arranged for battle before them, the people are in anguish, all faces turn pale. They run like mighty men, they climb the wall like soldiers, and they each march in line. Nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other, they march everyone in his, in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city, they run on the wall, they climb into houses, they enter through the windows. Like a thief before them, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. In the latter part of chapter 2, after he gives the promise of the coming of the Spirit, in verses 28 and 29, he says in verse 30, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Language of judgment against his own people, against Egypt, against Babylon. This is the same language and the same occurrence as chapter 2, obviously, when you read of it, of course, on the day of Pentecost. This is the same language that Jesus used in Matthew 24. The sun and the moon being darkened. The stars not flashing their light. What's he talking about? He's talking about judgment. The awesome great day of the Lord that was coming. And as Peter stands on the day of Pentecost and he quotes from Joel, this is what Joel spoke of. He doesn't just stop at the giving of the Spirit. He says the rest of it too because the great and the awesome day of the Lord against His people is coming. Because Jesus said, Upon you all the righteous blood shed on the earth from righteous Abel to Zechariah whom you murdered between the altar is coming upon you. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, he says. That is judgment language. To describe the, the, the majesty and the, and the fear, the awesomeness of God. 
when he rises up against his enemies. And the prophet gives us the understanding as to why. Why why is God doing this? Well, one, he is the just God. He is the holy God. But in verse 13, we read this. You went forth for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed, you struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. Why is the Lord coming in swift judgment as he is? The same reason he did in Isaiah, the same reason he does it in Ezekiel, the same reason he does it in Joel. It is for the salvation of his people to deliver them. He is coming to vindicate his name. He is coming to defend his people. And when God is coming to defend his people, all his enemies will tremble. And this is where the prophet is, is, is seeing this language, and he's writing this language, rather, that is, again, saturated with so many things that are found in, in other passages of Scripture. It's, it's all saturated with Scripture. But the great hope that he has in doing and writing this and in praying to the Lord is that you are going to deliver your people. You're going to rescue your people. The Lord will rescue his people. I think sometimes we, we t- maybe we forget that. Maybe we don't consider that. That regardless of how bad things get, we just think that it's going to just continue that way because the Lord is going to do nothing. But what we find within the scripture is quite the opposite. After whatever period that God has allowed, that he rescues his people. Do you know that? God rescues his people. It is at his appointed time, just as it was for Habakkuk. Habakkuk, you're going to have to endure this. This this prophecy that I'm giving you, this vision that I'm giving you is for an appointed time. It will come. It will not delay. Live by faith. Even in the midst of, again, great distress, the prophet is reminding himself of these things. He's reminding his readers of this, that God is coming for the salvation of his people. He's going to strike the head of the house of evil and he's going he's to lay him open. He's going to bring death to the house of evil. Now, <clears throat> Again, this is a wonderful psalm. This is a very emotionally charged psalm by the prophet. It is one, again, that is giving such reliance and hope in the Lord. And yet, from verses 16 on, the prophet is reminding the readers, we still have to endure this. He says, I heard... And my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place, I tremble. He knows what's coming. He's going to have to endure it, along with all the other righteous that are in the land. The great hope is God will deliver us, God will spare. In wrath, He will remember mercy. But we have to endure this. This is the chastening hand of God upon the wickedness of our people. And we have to endure as well.
says, and in my place I tremble. Again, when you think of some of these that are in the scripture and in the circumstances that they find themselves in, we, we think they're superhuman or something because of the things that they say and, and they don't fear. They're not anxious about anything. He says, I tremble. Decay enters my bones at the sound. My lips quivered. Because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. I have to wait for that day. I have to wait for the day in which this massive army will come against the people of God. I have to wait knowing the calamity that's coming, knowing the bloodshed that's coming and the violence that's coming. Knowing it's coming, I must wait. Now, when he does come, when Nebuchadnezzar does come, what happens? The Jews are taken into captivity. The temple is destroyed. They remain there for 70 years. They finally get to come home. Many of those who went into captivity are going to probably die in Babylon. But God is going to remember his people, remember his covenant, remember the love that he swore to them, and he's going to bring them back. Because he is a just and holy God, and he is a faithful God. He will bring them back into the land that he swore. He will rescue them from the hand of the enemy. Regardless of how, how terrible things get in Jerusalem... In Israel. Now these, these things that he says here would probably bring our minds back to Deuteronomy 28 when you begin to look at the blessings in the, in the 27 and 28. When you're looking at the blessings and the, curse, the curses of, of obedience unto the Lord, you obey, you're going to have plenty, you're going to prosper, you're, you're, you're going to lack for nothing. You disobey me. Don't expect to have any crops. You're going to have an enemy to invade you. Everything that is getting ready to happen, happened because the Lord promised it would happen in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. So when the prophet is saying, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive, on the, of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. All the things that God said. He's not going to prosper them. He's not going to bless them because they are in disobedience to him. So not only is the army coming, not only is that great calamity coming, but they also have the things that are going on in the land itself because God isn't going to bless them because of their disobedience, because of their rebellion. Though everything should fall apart around me, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. What is he doing? He's demonstrating what it is to live by faith. All this is really hinging on chapter 2 verse 4. Living by faith. Everything around me is crumbling. The land is giving us no food. The enemy is getting ready to overtake us. 
God is chastening us. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. My lips quiver when I think about what's getting ready to happen. Decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble. Yet I will exult in the God of my salvation. I will rejoice in him. Those seem like two contradictory ideas there. Two opposing uh, emotions at the same time. How does that happen? Knowing what's coming. It goes back to what Paul says. It goes back to what Jesus says. Especially Jesus when he says, peace I leave with you. Paul says this is the peace that surpasses all understanding. That in the midst of great distress, knowing calamity that's occurring or getting ready to occur, the trouble that's coming upon your life, yet at the very same time there's a peace because you're trusting in the sovereign king who is bringing all this about. There is great trust in knowing the, so- the sovereignty of God. If, if we don't believe that God is sovereign and things can happen by coincidence or whatever, that's a time to fear. But if we can recognize that God is doing all things according to his will, he's working all things after the counsel of his will, then that in itself is what what reinvigorates us. Oh, Lord, you have purpose in this. You are bringing this to pass. I will rejoice in you because you are the God of my salvation. Though everything else fall and and crumble, all the calamity that gets ready to happen, I'm going to rejoice in you because I belong to you. You purchased me. I'm yours. That's what the prophet is doing. That's where his hope is. That's where his peace is. It's in the God of his salvation. The Lord God is my strength, he says. And he makes my feet like hinds feet. He he makes me walk on high places. That beautiful poetical language of, of God bringing his people along and blessing No matter what happens, the Lord is the one who who has them in his hand to overcome, to endure. Some some of the Psalms are very similar to this in which you have some kind of a problem that's being introduced. And usually by the end of it, the prophet or or the psalmist is then praising the Lord. Maybe we don't know exactly what's happening as far as if this particular situation was remedied. Did, did God fix it? And so he's, he's praising the Lord thereafter. Well, this is one of those in which you know the calamity's coming. And the prophet is going to endure it. And yet he still rejoices in the Lord. Because God gives everything that is needed for his people to endure, even in the midst of calamity. And God gives his people the great hope that he is the sovereign God, that he is the faithful God, and that he will vindicate his name among his enemies. And no matter what enemy comes against his people, when the Lord rises up against them, though they may not fear now, they will fear when God brings swift judgment. God isn't allowing wickedness to prosper and doing nothing about it. He's not showing favor to wickedness that we see even in our own nation or in other nations. God is taking note. 
and they are only storing up for themselves wrath in the day of wrath. And at God's appointed time, though there's no fear before their eyes, they will tremble when God comes against them. Because he is just and righteous, and he will bring forth his justice. So in that, we hope, we praise God, we pray, O oh Lord, that your justice be manifest in the earth. Justice is something that we should be praying for. God is a just God. His justice is a demonstration of his glory, of his holiness. We praise him for his justice. Because in his justice, he will make all things right. So as we close this book, let us remember, uh, especially chapter 3. You see a lot of progression here. The complaining, the questioning of God's character, what God says to him of the great calamity that's coming and and the judgment that he's going to give upon his enemies. But in chapter 3, you see prophet you see him then relying on the word of God trusting in the word of God and the Lord being the source of his peace and hope that's where we need to get to we need to recognize that no matter how bad things get that it could very well be that God is chastening the nation as we see in Romans 1 he's bringing judgment and perhaps if the Lord wills If the Lord intends to, he can deliver his people as he has in so many instances before. It's not a far-fetched idea to believe that God can change the entire trajectory of the nation. He took 12 men and turned the Roman Empire upside down. So that by the year... 312, the nation has adopted Christianity, or the empire has adopted Christianity as its official religion, and so the persecution stopped. The last one was Diocletian, then you get to Constantine. It's arguable whether or not he was a Christian, you can look at that yourself. But God brought an end to the persecution, and the church was able to flourish. You take that period in history, you take the Reformation The very thing that we look back on all the time. What was that? That was a great revival that occurred. Or the great awakening. God is able to do these things. We need to remember that God is able to do these things. And let us pray then for it. And let us hope in the Lord regardless of what his will is. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. Thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for this, uh, these words that were prayed to you, but we have the privilege of reading. We have the privilege of being encouraged by these words, recognizing, Father, uh, the majesty, the glory, the greatness, the awesomeness of our God. None can thwart your hand. Father, none can can thwart your will. None can hinder you when you rise up against your enemies. Oh, Lord, we recognize that 
our nation is, is under judgment according to your word. Help us to endure. Help us to maintain ourselves in such a way that you'd be honored by our lives. And we pray that regardless of how much time that we may have here, that we would be able then to, to spread the gospel, to tell of the wonderful works of our God and the great hope that is in Christ. We know you can do all things. We don't know what your will is. But we pray, Father, that, that if it is your will, you can turn this nation around as well as other nations. You are capable of doing that. Whatever your will be, help us to endure. Help us to focus upon you. Help us to look to Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Let us not grow weary, but help us, Lord. Keep us, keep us close to you, that we would be steadfast and immovable in the hope that is in Christ. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's children said, amen. Thank you very much for your attention, and you are dismissed.